All right, well, Happy New Year, everyone. It's 2022. It's good to see each and every one of you guys here. I hope each and every one of you had an incredible Christmas and New Year's Eve and a start to 2022. Man, just even hearing that, it's 2022, right? Isn't it like crazy? Like I can't, I can't make my mind to, to really understand or comprehend, wow, we are in 2022. I remember last week when my, my son and I, we were driving to my sister's house to have our Christmas uh, day as a family together. As we were driving here in Ontario, um, especially here in the Mississauga area, on that Christmas day, it was almost like spring-like weather, right? So we're driving there, you know, it's, uh, there's no, hardly any snow on the ground. And my son turns to me and he just says, Dad, it really doesn't feel like Christmas. Like, I don't feel like we're in the Christmas season. And then uh, I began to think about that a little bit more. And I felt the same about New Year's Eve and New Year's Day as well. And I think part of the reason why uh, this year, maybe for my family or my son and I, we feel kind of like offset with Christmas and New Year's is maybe it's because of the tiresome year that we had with all of the uncertainty, the constant pivoting, and the adjusting according to our social protocols. After a while, doesn't it feel like everything just seems to blur together, right? Where all our days, our weeks, and our months, it just all kind of blurs in into one within the four walls of our room or our house that it, it kind of feels like time's not passing. We're just in this kind of standstill. I remember the last like kind of Christmas that it really felt like Christmas was 2019. And I feel like we just finished 2019, but we skipped 2020, 21, and now we're getting into 2022. And so with this new year that's just begun and is just ahead of us, I wonder what some of your hopes, some of your wishes are for this coming year. You know, I came across this really interesting quote by this American-Canadian science fiction novelist. Um, his name is William Gibson. And he actually, he's actually the one that coined the term cyberspace. And this is, um, this is the great quote that I think reserve, uh, deserves some sort of reflection on our part to think about as we look into our future of what 2022 may mean for some of us. He says this, the future has already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed yet. The future has already arrived. It's not just evenly distributed yet. Isn't that a great quote? Like uh, what William Gibson is trying to communicate as he specializes in the science fiction, in the technology kind of space, he's communicating that there are some within any society, with any company, with any groups of people that have discovered things or discovered something that will help move the rest of us in and to what that future should look like. For some of us, in our families, in our companies, in our society, we have already stumbled upon or we have already discovered something that will form the future 
for the rest of us. What that means is, you know, within a company as they're creating certain things and as they're building something things, you know, what their future holds is that means that someone within their department or someone in a certain department anywhere, and it doesn't matter which one, could have an idea, could have an experience, can have the next thing for that company that drives everyone in into that future. It's just not evenly distributed yet. It's an idea that begins with one person and it begins to spread and changes the course of the company. It can happen in a family as well. It can be any person within a family unit that has this idea, that has this change, and then it drives that family in into that future. It can also happen with a political party, that a political party may be stuck in a certain era or a certain way of thinking and they need to progress. And someone within that party has this idea and it begins to form and it begins to saturate throughout. So the future has already uh, arrived in that person. It's just not evenly distributed among that party yet. It can also happen within a church that we see through the life of Jesus Christ with the people of God. It began with Jesus inaugurating the kingdom of God, what it was really about. And with Jesus, the future of what the kingdom of God is already like was found in him. It was just not evenly distributed yet. You know, Gibson's quote, it kind of reminds me of Jesus' catchphrase that we see in the Gospels. He says over and over and over again, he says, repent or turn from your old ways. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's surrender certain ways that are, that are of our life that we seek comfort in or, or uh, basically it's, it's induced by our desire for security. And, and sometimes we don't see what that future might hold. And so we keep holding on to things that are more comfortable for us. And what Jesus calls us to do in certain moments and times of our life is there are things that handcuff us, things that hold us back. And Jesus comes and he says, as fearful and as risk-filled that this future may look like for you, he says, repent of our ways for God's kingdom is at hand. It's been inaugurated. It's coming. And it's spreading. You see, for some of us, we may have felt the past two years, we have felt stuck in a certain rut or in a certain way of living. And we desperately hold on to certain things that we feel like, well, at least I have this. And at least this is familiar to me. As we hold on to that, in hopes that with all the uncertainty that is ahead, we realize that we're not moving anywhere. We're stagnant. And as we look into 2022, I want to encourage us to look beyond that stagnation and to possibly think in whatever area of your heart, whatever area of your life, is it possible That God is speaking already to you. And he's revealing to you a revolution that he wants to bring into your life. It may start in just one small area of your in your life, but it's there. It's just not evenly distributed yet. 
Is it possible that God is inaugurating his revolution for our life? So before we engage with today's passage, so what we see, what we will see through today's passage is we will notice how Paul uses Israel's history to show how God has been with them through every moment of their life, also revealing what we can do to allow him to bring about that revolution in our hearts and for those of us who continually feel stuck in our way. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to read verses 16 to 23. I'll be reading from the NIV. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And we'll begin at verse 16 and we'll go to 23. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Let me pray. Father, as we journey through uh, this scripture passage together, I ask, Father, that this will form a great a launching pad for us to really discern and look into our 2022. I pray, Father, that we'll continually allow your word, your voice to be our direction, to be our guide as we navigate through this upcoming year. May we find, Father, our hope in our security in and through you. May we not be led by, every, by any other voice, any other fears that tried to distract us from you. So I thank you, Father, Holy Spirit. Will you open up our hearts and our minds so that we may hear from you. We may be directed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See, from verses 16 to 20, Paul summarizes 450 years of Israel's history during their slavery in Egypt to their rescue and the establishment in a new land. And then in the next few verses from 20 to 22, he summarizes the next 400 years from the time of Judges to David's reign as king. As we look at this like really shortened, summarized history, 
that Paul provides for the Jewish people and for the believing Gentiles, there's a few observations that I know in the history that he gives, and it's this. First, we both, uh, both God and his people seem to want the same thing when it comes to the people's needs. As we recount through this history, it's not like the people want something and then God wants something else from them. There's this shared desire that the people have and that God has. And he says, you know what? I know the longings that are in your heart. And God doesn't say, I don't care about your longings. Do things the way, only the way, or only wish the things that I want for your life. He doesn't do that. There seems to be the shared longing that the people have. You see, some of the shared longing that we see is, is when they were enslaved, there's a shared longing for freedom. God says, as much as you desire freedom, so do I want to bring you freedom. As they were expect, um, experiencing confusion, as they were wandering in the wilderness and trying to figure out their new identity, God wants to help them establish their identity. You are going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And as they start to crave nationhood and to have a land of their own, God says, yes, that's my heart too. I want you to have a land of your own so that in this land you can enjoy the goodness of who I am and for you to be a light and a blessing to the nations who are around you. But here's the change that we see. The second observation that we meet is their vision, though, of how to get there. And their vision of what they do after they have received it, it seems to differ. So even though they share in that same desire, their vision of how to get there and what to do once they receive it, it seems to differ. Look at what we see in verse 21. It says, then the people asked for a king. They already had a king. God was their king. God was their one who was leading them, guiding them, providing all these things for them. When no one else would care for them, God was always there. And yet at verse 21, what we see the people longing for and just saying, even after God was with them for those uh, 850 years, they still say, we don't want you. We want a king who will do our bidding, who will work in our ways, the way that we want our king to work. You see, when they looked around and saw all the other nations and how they were living, they decided that the best way of getting things and holding on to things was having their own appointed king. See, in our lives, we're going we're gonna to notice the same thing is that although we may share the same things of God's heart, the same things that we want, our vision of how we get there and, and why God has given it to us, it may differ. Thirdly, what we also see is God's presence and provision is not a result of their trust and obedience. This is an important thing. That we get because this is an amazing act of God's grace. God's presence and provision in their life is not a result of their trust and obedience. What I mean by this is no matter how many times the people of Israel strayed, no matter how many times the people of Israel rebelled against God, his presence remained with them. 
no matter how many times they just start to turn their back and, and pursue their own ways, what we see God continually doing is providing them their needs. You see, this trust and obedience was not there as, you know, first show me this in your life. And only if you give me this, then I will give you what you need. God's goodness, God's grace, the amazing and surprising thing of God's goodness in our life is that he provides even when we turn our back away from him. So what's the point then of trust and obedience? Well, the point of trust and obedience, again, refers to that second observation that we made is that how we get there and what we do with what we're given, it, that determines, that is determined by our trust and obedience. It's what becomes of what we received and our experience of what we received is contingent upon trust and obedience. Fourth, we also notice the omission of significant names. Do you, do you see when he's sharing at the beginning part, you would kind of think that Paul would mention names like Joseph helped them prosper in Egypt. Moses led them out of slavery when they were enslaved. Joshua helped them as they conquered the new land. But all of these names are replaced by God. It is God who helped you prosper in Egypt. It is God who led you out of slavery. It is God who guided you and provided for you in the wilderness. It is God who gave you the promised land and cast out the seven nations that were there. You see, the point that, uh, uh, that Paul is trying to bring out in this is that oftentimes the kind of influence that we had, the discussion question that we were supposed to have together about who made these uh, great impacts in our life and who, who, um, who had this kind of influence um, that positively changed the course and helped us to change, uh, move us from being stuck to following him. You see, what Paul points out to the people of Israel is all of these great leaders that you have, it wasn't so much them as a central figure, it was God who was there that brought these people in into their lives to give them and provide for them what they needed. See, brothers and sisters, oftentimes in our life, within our own history, we can easily forget, possibly just like the Israelites, we can forget about God's sovereignty and God's hand in our life because we focus only on certain people or the materialistic things that are around us. We think, yeah, that person came into my life. God had nothing to do with it. Or this happened in my company. God had nothing to do with it. Or this happened within my family. And that's just something that I've earned for myself. But we, what we don't see is God's sovereign hand and grace at work all around us. Even when it seems like we've been doing things on our own. See, God leaves out these people. Because it seems, uh, Paul leaves out these people because it seems like he's trying to connect them with seeing God's sovereign hand and presence at work in their life. It seems important to Paul that the people understood God always played a role in directing them and providing for them, even when we were unaware. So as important as all of these other influences are or have been in their lives and in our lives, 
It was God, Paul says, who provided for these people. It was God who brought these leaders into these people's lives. Brothers and sisters, in our life too, we need to sit down and kind of recognize that is who we serve. This is the kind of God that we have. That he is the one that had provided us to our opportunities, who's connected us with different people, who has favor upon us even when we forget that he is at work in our life. So once we get to verse 20, Paul doesn't seem to follow his trend of leaving out names. Suddenly, he does bring in three names into the picture as he recounts the second half of Israel's history. See, here he begins to introduce, and then Samuel anointed Saul to become king, and then after Saul, Samuel anointed David to become, uh, to become king. And so you begin to question, why suddenly does now Paul bring up these names when he seems to keep the names out of it, but here he includes these names in Israel's history. I think when we dig into the stories of Saul and David, we can possibly see a reason why Paul may have now introduced these names into this portion of Israel's story. And I think it's, and I think the purpose is this, is Paul is leading us to see a choosing to trust in God rather than yield to fear. By using these two examples, he's saying our response to our future, our response in the way that we live with God is either a Saul response or a David response. There's a choosing to trust in God rather than yield to our fear. So Paul shows two different types of people who follow God. Right? So both Saul and David, they were people who supposedly were uh, those who were um, part of God's people, who were called, in our day, we would call them Christians. For them, they were called the people of God. There's two different examples of people of God that we see typified by Saul and by David. When we look at the backdrop of Saul's story, after he was appointed king, we see an important battle that begins to happen between Saul and the Philistines. And so as he's about to enter this battle, and he's kind of stirring up the battle, maybe it's because Saul wanted to prove to the nation of Israel that he, is, he has every right to be king. And he begins to stir trouble and attack certain outposts. And then the Philistines get so angry and upset that they muster their entire army and they're gathering and they're gathering and it's getting bigger and bigger. And Saul is now supposed to go against them. In this battle, but Samuel tells Saul, hey, don't go into battle until I get there and I offer on behalf of you the offerings that God requires. And he says, wait seven days. Wait seven days despite the gathering armies and your fears that may be amounting. Wait seven days until I get there and I conduct that offering, that sacrifice. And so Saul is waiting, but as he waits, as he sees the army growing, the Philistine army growing and growing and growing, his own army becomes fear-filled. And as they become fear-filled, some of them begin to run away. In fact, we find out by the, by the time that Samuel gets there, 
there's only 600 of his men left for that battle. And so you can imagine, he may, be, he may have had thousands of people, but people start running away, hiding in caves, as this Philistine army is growing into maybe the hundreds of thousands, and he's seeing them, and they're growing in fear. And so what Saul does is, I can't keep waiting for God. Right? I know Samuel told me to wait here and, and, and to wait for him to come, but my people are running away. By, if I keep waiting, I will have zero people left to fight this battle. So what Saul does is he runs out of patience, and because of his fear, he takes over. And he says, I don't need Samuel. I'll just do it my way. And he offers a sacrifice by himself. And as soon as that sacrifice is offered, Samuel arrives and he says to Saul, what have you done? Is this what your relationship with God amounts to? Where you're so caught up with fear, so caught up with losing whatever resources that you might have, that you stop trusting in God and you trust more in your resources. See, Saul was busy counting his resources, counting his fighting men, rather than counting on God to determine the hope of his future. See, by that fear response that Saul gave, it began to shape the kind of relationship that Saul had with God. And what we see is that Saul had more of a superstitious kind of relationship with God. Where he says, I just need to do this um, offering and the sacrifice so I can win this battle. Right? He didn't see the significance of his relationship with God and trust and obedience that God can provide even when we don't have the means and even when we don't have that provision. That's why we serve an almighty God. That's why we serve um, a sovereign Lord. But Saul, he just treats him as a superstitious figure. That maybe if I pray a little bit more, God will give me victory. Or maybe if I give a little bit more offering, that God will have more favor upon me so I can win this battle. Maybe if I go to church a little bit more often, God will do these kind of things for me. He begins to form a superstitious relationship with God. See, what Saul shows in his actions is how we as well can begin to follow our own relationship with Christ that's based more on superficial means and superstitious mindsets than on our real relationship with him to experience who God really is. But then we see the comparison happen in 1 Samuel 16 to 17, a few chapters later, when David is anointed king. You see, David he's, was a sh shepherd boy living in faithfulness to what he was doing. And we all know the story, right? Samuel shows up because God has rejected Saul as king and tells Samuel, go and anoint the person that I'll tell you who is going to be king. And so he goes and he goes through all the brothers. They're still not it. They call in finally David out from the fields who's tending the flock. And he is the one that Samuel says, this is the one that God has appointed king over Israel. And you guys remember what happens next. Nothing. He's appointed king. He's anointed king, but nothing happens. Like people don't just suddenly flock to David and start following him. David doesn't suddenly say, where's my robe? And how come it's not starting right away? He just goes back to his old life. He continues 
to shepherd the flock that was under his care. That's it. Even though this great promise is given, you are now the future king of Israel. See, David, despite this great vision that's given to him, he trusts in God's timing and he's patient in when God delivers it. In the meantime, what David is, he's just faithful and he continues to be faithful in the small things. Some of the small things, it can feel demeaning to David. I've just been appointed king and all my brothers are going to fight this awesome battle against the Philistines and then my dad sticks me at home to ten sheep and then he tells me to be a, a Uber Eats delivery guy to go and just deliver food to my brothers, right? But what we see in David's heart is there's no complaint. There's no mindset of, I'm, this is beneath me. I'm supposed to be the future king. And here I am delivering food to my brothers. And is that what God means by being the king or the anointed king? But what we see in David is that he trusts in the timing and his relationship with God. He is faithful even in the smallest things that seem and can appear so demeaning, so out of touch with this vision or this hope that God has already placed on David's life. As he's faithful in delivering the food, God uses that small thing. Go deliver food. God, David could have said, no, I'm not going to do such a demeaning thing. If my brothers are hungry, tell them to come back and get their food. In that faithfulness, in that small thing, as he goes to deliver that food, that's where this timing begins to unpack. As he as he's on the front lines delivering the food to his brothers, he catches uh, wind of what Goliath says to the armies of Israel. He calls them dogs and he says, hey, isn't there anyone among you who's brave enough to come and fight me? And whoever wins, let's just say that the war is over. And if I win, then, uh, then you guys are defeated. But if your person wins, then we will uh, submit under you guys. But everyone is fear-filled again. Everyone. And they're all whispering, who is going to go against this great warrior who is so big, so skilled, and everyone is trembling? And when David hears it, notice how David responds. He doesn't again respond in fear. David responds by trusting in the name of the Lord our God. In fact, he says, this is not right. What this Goliath says against God's name must not stand. This is a kind of reverence David has for God's name. It has nothing to do with him has everything to do with God's name. Who is this? And we see him declare in 1726, who is this guy who defies the armies of the living God? In other words, he doesn't look at his height. He doesn't look at his resources. David doesn't look at what he, he has himself. He looks at the, just the audaciousness of Goliath to say, how dare you go against the name of the Lord our God? David cannot let that stand. And so David decides, if no one else is going to go against this guy, then I will. I will make sure that I go against this person because I will not allow fear to dictate 
who God is and how God works. You see, sometimes in our life, we are met with these Goliaths that voice fears in into our life. And just like the armies of Israel, our response to that can just be fear and trembling as we kind of bow down to what seems to be powerful forces that are beyond our control. Powerful forces that are beyond our own resourcefulness. And we allow that to dictate how we respond in our relationship with God and in relationship to that situation. What we learn from David is a response that's not determined by that fear-filled voice. David says, how dare you defy the name of the Lord our God. You come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I will go against you. In the name of the Lord our God. See, brothers and sisters, for each one of us, as we look into our 2022, we might have certain fears and certain things that come against us with great weapons and great skill and, and what looks like the impossible. They come against us with sword, spear, and javelin. But what we learn from David saying, but we have a greater name. And we can look fear in its face. Say, you come against me with these things, but I will go against you and I will stand this ground in the name of the Lord, my God. He doesn't make a rash decision like Saul did. Just saying, what's any superficial thing that I can do? Right? Or, or just puts aside his relationship with God out of fear and just saying, we got to prepare for this more. I don't have time to spend time with God or I don't have time to be consistent in my, in my space with God or my worship of God. What David is, is because he's so consistent in those small things, he becomes utterly convinced that God's name is above every other name. It's God's name that directs David in all of his decisions. It's his name and the glory of his name that David decides that's how I'm going to live. David's not king yet. And David may die in battle against Goliath. But he's not concerned of how come God didn't make me king yet? Or how come, uh, you know, what if I go into battle and I don't become king? What does that say about God? He says he's more concerned with living out the glory and the power of God's name. And that's where he experiences victory. This is why I think Paul describes David as a man after God's own heart. But there's a greater significance to, um, to being a person who is after God's own heart. He draws us out in verse 23, where Paul says this, From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The significance of this statement that, that Paul is making is, yes, on the, on the overarching whole picture, through David's descendants came Jesus Christ, our Savior. But there's also a symbolic significance behind that as well. He begins by saying, 
David's a man after God's own heart, and he shows that what that means is he trusts in God's name above every other name. He obeys God's commands. That's what is in his heart. That's what defines a man after God's own heart. And because of that line, because of that significance, because of that testimony, God chooses David to be the one from whom Jesus, the Savior of the world, will come and we will experience him. So what's the symbolic significance there? It means this. In other words, this kind of heart, to have a heart that is after God's own heart in all of our fears, in all of the uncertainties that we face ahead, to have a heart that continually anchors on being after God's own heart, it allows us to encounter Jesus. Just as we see in David, as he does that, and he says, I will come against you and stand against you in the name of the Lord our God. Because of this, and having no other resource, he, he brings the feet of Goliath, and he experiences the power of God in his life. In that same way, brothers and sisters, when we hold to that, to be a people who is after God's own heart, it leads us to encounter Jesus in our lives. It was from that heart that brought about the promise of Jesus, the Savior of the world. This Jesus who brings that impact into our life, into every part of our being, who brings us back to life, who brings a revolution into our lifestyle, into our thinking, the way that we make our decisions, the way that we stand against all of these fears. In that same way, as we stand against that, we bring hope to the people who are around us that this, this new hope does not just uh, stay with us. It goes with the quote that we heard from the very beginning. The future has already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed yet. In that same way as that hope comes into our hearts and we stand with that and we allow that to become our living testimony. It has arrived. God's kingdom has come and it's begun to uh, we've begun to experience its power and its revolution in our own hearts. It's piercing through that has already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed yet. First, in our own hearts and in our church community. Brothers and sisters, is it possible as we look into 2022 that with all the uncertainties out there and whatever our greatest fears may be, God says, be patient, trust in me, hold to me, Bind yourselves to me. Don't let go of me. Despite all of these other voices, despite all of these other things that are happening in your life, hold to me. And as you do, I'm going to bring this revolution, this encounter with Jesus in your life. I'm going to allow my kingdom, my name to be inaugurated in that area of your life. My kingdom has come. It's just not evenly distributed in your heart yet. Is it possible as, as we allow God to do that in our own experience, as other people see it, just as other people saw the victory of David, and they grow excited about the name of the Lord our God, of what God can do for their lives too, that they begin to turn their hearts towards God. It becomes more distributed. 
Is it possible that God wants to inaugurate his kingdom in that area of our life to spread and then in our own area for it to be an influence on other people so that it may continually spread in that kind of way in our community too? Where Jesus is the one that we encounter. Where our past is not defined by just moments that have just passed by and us feeling but where was God in it all I met other people and other these kind of people had significance in my life but we see God's handprint in every aspect of our life that God is the one that has provided that God is the one that got us to where we need to be and the vision that he has for our heart he shares that same vision with each and every one of us he says I know what you want in your heart and I want the same thing too But let's do it this way. Let's not seek any other king. Let's not seek any other means. Let's declare Jesus is my king. And let's be faithful to trust and obey rather than giving in to our fears and these other voices that pull us away. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for encounter community for each and every one of you is that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you your greatest fears of this year. These kind of hopes that we have, but we're kind of too scared to really put it out there because of the possibility of losing it and feeling dejected if we don't get that and already having just a difficult couple of years behind us that we can't take anymore. Let's be like David and just say, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin. I stand here today in the name of the Lord our God. Brothers and sisters, may we be people who are after God's own heart. May we be people who trust, who are patient, and wait for him to come. And as we do so, may we experience the power of Jesus in our life. At this time, I want to invite you to go and get your communion elements. And as you get this element, the grace that we have knowing is that to guarantee and to ensure that it's not dependent on us and our own goodness. And that's why God's presence is always with us is he gave Jesus. And to bring us that hope that at all times that we have accessibility to God. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that has been broken for you. Take, eat, and remember me. Brothers and sisters, before we take the the bread of Christ that represents his body that was broken for us, let's first repent. Let's first lay down as one of our first exercises of 2022 the loudness of the voices of fear in our life. Say, Lord, Your life was broken for me so that these powers would not have authority 
over me anymore. But I want you to be my Savior and Lord. So brothers and sisters, let's go into a time of prayer. Just repenting and laying down our fears before God and asking Him to be the Savior and Lord of our life. Let's pray together. Father Lord, may we continue to experience the power of your name in our life. Will you teach us, Father Lord, to be faithful in the small things that we have already been given, to trust and obey, to hold fast to these things that you're revealing to us to do. Let's not, Father Lord, make rash decisions and be anxious and to go here and there and to be inconsistent. Let's learn to be faithful in the small things. And as we do, Father Lord, may we count on you rather than looking at the resources that we have. May we be faithful in guarding our time with you, Lord. Be faithful what you've entrusted to us. And when that moment comes, Lord, where you reveal a Goliath that comes our way, with that small faithfulness that we have been anchoring ourselves to. May we fight that battle in your name, Lord. And as we do, Father, Lord, may we experience victory that comes in your name. May we encounter Jesus Christ in those moments. I pray, Father, that our 2022 may be driven by a vision of you, Father, Lord drawing close to you. I pray, Father Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see what you have in store for us, the plans and the purposes that you have for us. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.